Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 26th episode of Mac PFD Spark. Today we will be listening to two talks focused on empathy. First, we will have the opportunity to listen to registered midwife Susanna Koo reflect on her experiences as a patient who also works to provide care. Next, we will hear about creativity and design thinking in education from Dr. Sean Park. Please enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Teresa Chan, and I'm here with Susanna Koo. Susanna, can you say hi? Hi, hello. Susanna is part of the PhD program in global health and is a registered midwife. And she's here to share her story as a provider, but also as a patient. And I thought that I would ask Susanna to give us a little bit of insights because we are doing a deep dive into what happens when we're on the other side of the curtain. So Susanna, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Susanna Koo. I'm a registered midwife who was internationally trained in South America in Peru. In 2013, I joined the midwifery force in Canada after successfully completing the international midwifery program at Ryerson University. I've been working in Ontario, Canada as a full-time registered midwife for the past six years now. Before coming into Canada, I was working as a midwife in Peru, in Lima specifically. I finished my master's degree in Peru in sexual and reproductive health, and then now I embark on a new journey as a PhD student in the global health program. Very interesting. What are you doing with your PhD dissertation in? So I'm brainstorming ideas, but my main focus of my dissertation will be on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on midwifery services in Lima, Peru, and and I'm planning to compare it to the uh, impact in Ontario, Canada. Very interesting. I mean, COVID's on everyone's brain, so you might as well. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know a lot of people might think that there's a lot of research going around about COVID-19, but it's actually in times of crisis when you actually recognize where are the weaknesses of the health system. And midwifery is long overdue to be recognized as a primary service that actually needs to be in all cadres around the world. Yeah. And so we recently actually interviewed Dr. Liz Darling about midwifery in Ontario. And that was really, really cool. So really excited to have you speak and talk to us a little bit more about what it meant to be a person who crossed over from provider to patient. Because I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the ways that we can stay really human is to understand what the differences are between one side and the other side of the care path. So I guess my journey on the other side of the picture was in the first time in 2018. I was here in Canada already. I was expecting my first baby. So I all of a sudden became a client in the midwifery practice where I worked. I guess one of the biggest challenges was to disconnect my brain from a clinical thinking. So 
I understood the process of childbearing as any other circumstances in life is a very uncontrollable aspect of your life. And sometimes having so much information can either play on your favor or against you. So I guess my personal decision was to disconnect my knowledge as a physician and to just let life take its course. But I also noticed that it is very difficult for your colleagues to disconnect that idea. I guess recently we discussed in a brief introduction that one of the biggest barriers that I've noticed, or I don't know if barriers or challenges, but especially for these students, we had at that time new registrant midwives, two actually, who were joining our practices because whereas there were other midwives also going on mat leave. So they were in the process of supervision as new registrant midwives or primary care providers. So one of them actually was one of my midwives. She actually disclosed that she was a little bit nervous just to provide the care because she felt that I was not in a position of a client, but as a supervisor. So we made sure that the process was not stressful for, in this case, for, for her, because she was constantly feeling probably that I was like assessing her skills or so on. The other part of it was also to recognize that, especially in the freaker model, when your choice are usually a big part of your care because it's women-centered care or pregnant people-centered care. It is different when you have to advocate for somebody else and when you advocate for yourself. I feel that it takes more strength and probably more effort to advocate for oneself when you come into the hospital, for example, and then you go against or you decide to go against the community standards or the protocols. Judgment might come from other colleagues or other professions saying like, you know what this is, you know the numbers, you know the clinical picture. Why are you going against it if you should be the one making decisions based on evidence or those kind of scenarios? I felt though personally that my care was more than I expected in terms that I was very fortunate that I didn't have much complications. So I was able to choose staying at home and then my wishes were respected. But I could feel through the pregnancy that a lot of questions came out as like, oh, because you're a midwife, I'm sure you're gonna ha- you're gonna ask for a home birth. And at that moment my statement was like, I'm just gonna go where wherever I feel more comfortable. And if everything goes pretty straightforward, I'm not gonna s- stick to a one plan because I know how childbearing plays. It can go one way or the other in just seconds. But that assumption from other mothers, like, oh, because you're a midwife, you're going to go this path because that's what you do, guys. So that was one of the other aspects that I have noticed. And I cannot imagine how other people without probably the information that we have go through, especially clients that go into midwifery care. And then they have a lot of questions from family members or friends saying, like, why are you going to midwife? Don't tell me you're asking for a home birth. And then having that pressure without being a health provider, I imagine that it could be more impactful for them because they second guess their decision or they feel alone on there. Because I'm a midwife and a clinician and I have the information, my family was supportive of my decisions, whether in my culture is not a norm. Well, it's, well, it's not a norm to have a home birth because usually in our countries as well, you have a home birth because you can't afford going into the hospital. But even in that circumstance, just because of my profession and being a clinician, I was a, I was in a position to actually discuss that with my family, with my friends. My partner was very supportive and I knew what I was embarking on. 
that's very powerful. I mean, I think that you're telling me that you asserted kind of like your power with the people around you because of your expertise. And that's, that's amazing. I think that when you're a provider that really resonated with you when I take care of providers. On the other side, as as a physician myself, I usually pick up on cues, even though they sometimes don't say anything, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, you can tell by the way they react to something or ask a certain question. And you're like, are you by any chance in healthcare? And then they're uh-huh. like, yeah, I'm a, and everybody seems a little bit sheepish to admit it, because I think they're worried about what you said, right? They're worried about making me feel nervous. They're ma- worried about making me feel like I have to perform differently or do more things. And it's interesting, right? Because that dynamic so it can be awkward, but it can also just decrease tension. Because sometimes I have to put on this act and it over explain things. And if I know you you understand all of that stuff because you have expertise, right? What sometimes it's just someone who has a PhD or someone whose mom was a nurse or someone whose sister is a doctor. Like all of these things, they they help me better answer the questions in the way that you'll need it answered, right? So for instance, I've had colleagues who don't say whether or not they're a doctor. I myself have also not said something at times, but it is something that I think when push comes to shove and you do need to pull the card, I guess, of explaining mm. that you're a provider, that you need a little bit more information, that you disagree with this perspective on how they want to treat you. I think that that would be something that you have to have that conversation and hopefully it can evolve and be organic, just like you would with any informed patient. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's any different than someone who's done a lot of deep research or has a lot of lived experience as a patient. Mm-hmm. Some of our patients who have chronic disorders sometimes know their bodies and their conditions so much more, especially with some of the rare diseases, right? So I do think it's it's just a different art when you're providing care to someone mm-hmm. who is more expert sometimes than you yourself. As a generalist, I think sometimes, I mean, I don't know everything about some of the more rare diseases, some of the rare pediatric diseases. The parents are going to be so on top of things. They will teach you more mm. in a in a moment mm. than you could ever learn in a textbook. Similarly, people who have chronic conditions, even diabetes, which is so common now, or dementia, mm-hmm. patients' families and clients' families who care for someone with dementia will know if you play the music, they're going to, they're going to relax, you know, like we, we, these are all these nuances that mm-hmm. we take for granted. I think when we have these fleeting encounters in healthcare yeah. and mm-hmm. I think that we have to cash in and, and value that expertise of our, our patients, their families, and really kind of lean into that a little bit and figure out how to fold it in. I mean, I, I trained in an era of lots and lots of patient centered kind of like learning at the beginning and now patient centered care. Mm-hmm. It really is something that I feel is very core to what I do. And yet, it's so different when you have a patient who is just so smart and just just gets mm-hmm. it and has you know read the studies that you haven't read and and I can see how that would put some people in almost an imposter syndrome mode. So mm-hmm. you know I think you've mm-hmm. just confessed that you've seen some of that before. People get a little bit nervous and and I think mm-hmm. that as providers ourselves, what we can do then is ease that discomfort if we can, right? To say, mm-hmm. you know what, like, let's have a conversation, like, tell me how how you're thinking about this, coach them back up to have a successful dyad, because they can't just do what we want. Because again, we can't see the forest for the trees when we're the one that's in pain, when we're the one in distress, when mm-hmm. we're not seeing all the angles, it's kind of like when you're zoning in <laughs> mm-hmm. on a procedure mm-hmm. or something, right? Like you just can't mm-hmm. see the whole pic- picture. So I think that being able to value what the provider can bring and the outside perspective. And again, they may have knowledge they haven't shared because they're nervous. Mm-hmm. How can we then on the other side of things value mm-hmm. that as well? 
So Susanna, can you give everyone like one take-home point that from your perspective as a provider who's been a patient, what is one thing that you wish every provider thinks about when they're taking care of any patient? I will take one of the messages that you just said, trusting in the wisdom of our clients. I have learned this after being a client myself. Before, when I didn't have kids or so, I will have this conversation with our clients about like, oh, you teach me when you have this and this kind of contractions, like more textbook. I was conscious that the message I was sending was probably not textbook because every person is completely different. I've seen just by by expertise, just by looking at my mother when she was in labor, I knew that every person is different. But then when you come back from being a patient and then you're now positioned into a physician's perspective, you gain more respect from the other side. You understand, I think, and you're more sympathetic with the other side. Not that you weren't before, but it's a different kind of sympathy. For example, in my case, it's not necessarily just a course of care because I was pregnant and I had my baby. It was a whole transition into a new life. Now I was more packed with more knowledge beyond maybe free, like sleep deprivation or how your mental health changes after having a baby, how to approach your family based on the decisions you have made in terms of parenthood or parenting styles or so. So I guess the physicians, we have to be aware that what we learn from school is one aspect of the care that we're going to provide. And of course, we have to learn it. Of course, we have to apply this evidence. We have to be scientific, but we need to gain the skill to link that science with the human nature of every person. It takes a long time because as any other, we're also human beings. We might be living in a totally chaotic world right now like we are stressed we also have kids at our houses and we're trying to balance our clinical work having kids that can go to school or we spend long hours in front of the computer we are also afraid of what is going to happen when we leave our houses if we're going to bring the virus into our environment we have all this and it's okay to acknowledge our vulnerabilities in front of our clients or our patients, because it's totally okay. It's actually very needed for us to show to the other side that we are as humans as they are. And I feel that in that way, people, in this case, our patients and clients, are actually going to work more collaboratively with us or more in team with us, knowing that, okay, I understand where you're coming from. I know that you're a human being too. And I have this pain and I'm going to try my best for you to understand how I'm feeling. So I guess that's what I have learned from being on the other side and then coming back into the side. And I interchangeably change positions because when I'm in the park playing with my daughter, I'm a midwife, but I'm also a mother. And then I can't disconnect those two realities of myself. And it has actually helped me a lot to shape the kind of care that I want to provide to my clients. That's great. I think it really comes down to 
How do you connect with people? That's in the business that we're in. Sometimes it's easy for us to zone out and get obsessed with the science the same way that you as a patient or mm-hmm. a client on the other side get zoned in on something that you really value or that you really need in a moment. And being able to connect with the other person on the other side of uh, the curtain, on the other side of the stethoscope, on the other side of the Doppler <laughs> ultrasound, yes. whatever it is. I think that we just need to be able to have that conversation Mm -hmm. as two people and remember that humanity within each of us. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's my pleasure. Really exciting to hear your perspective and good luck on your PhD. Oh, thank you so much. Wow. That was a really awesome first segment of the Mac PFD spark podcast. And now on to our second segment. Hello, everyone. I am here again with Dr. Sean Park. He is an assistant professor here at McMaster University, and his areas of interest are diverse, but I would probably call him a creativity and innovation guru (laughs) and invite him to kind of say hi to everyone. Hello, hello. All right. Well, Sean, you have done some really cool things in education. And I have to say that I've been inspired by how creative you are in that space. But I know that a lot of that probably comes from this deep empathy that you've built up for the students that you are trying to reach and engage with. And I think that I wanted to bring you in to chat a little bit today about the idea of that empathy and maybe using tools like design thinking to really reshape educational experiences for our trainees and students. So design, where does it belong in education? So you could even reverse the question as, you know, where in design does education fit? Just because, I mean, I think all of education is is a question of design to the extent that we're thinking about not just learning objectives, right? We're thinking about the human beings, the learners, and the educators and their relationship and also how they change and what they do. And that, I mean, that's, that involves the, the complexity of human experience and human interaction. It includes the texts and the artifacts that people use. It includes the spaces that we're in and the bigger picture of what are we educating for? What kind of world do we want to be in? So I think of it as a, a real dynamic that education does fit in design and design does fit into education. And so I think about a few things and I think I've just mentioned a few there. One sort of is, is about culture. And I mean, I really think of this as what do we want to help people become? What kind of environment do we want to cultivate? And so this is, a lot of this is very intangible, but we feel it when we're in a space where we feel like our perspective matters or when we feel like we're going to be challenged, but it's going to be exciting. We also feel the fear when we walk into some places and spaces where we fear that we're going to be punished for making a mistake. We sense all of that. And that culture piece, I mean, is a, for me a design question in, in, in terms of how does everything that we do from the way that we speak, from the way that the space is set up, what kind of message does that generate? And then what I do, I mean, in my, some of my classrooms is if what we're interested in doing is helping people learn how to put their ideas out there into the world and not have them validated, but more to learn, right? To sort of say, hey, what sticks and what doesn't? And well, I'm going to go again 
and I'm going to sort of take that feedback, then that's the kind of environment that requires a couple of pieces that I think are really essential. A lot of this actually comes, you know, it's connected to the work on self-efficacy from Albert Bandura that's sort of translated into like, you know, creative self-efficacy. And one of those things is, well, you're going to have supportive peers. You're going to have a supportive peer environment. People are going to be sort of encouraging of you to do stuff, to try stuff out, give you different ideas and inputs. The other is, is that you're going to also have stuff modeled for you that you can sort of see, hey, what is it like to like do this thing in, in a good way, right? So seeing not like you're just kind of like figuring it out just for yourself. No, like you have something as a, as a rough guide to kind of show you what the terrain looks like. So you feel like you've got some sense of what's happening. One of my favorite pieces about all this is actually your state of arousal. If you're too calm, then you're not going to, you're not going to learn. But if you're also too overstimulated in an overdrive, I mean, you're also not going to learn as well. So things like, here's an example, what I've done with some of my students, I've, I've taken a whole class of students, I think 70, 80 students outside. I, they, they come in the classroom and I say to them, today we're going to be you know, coming up with a lot of different ideas for your projects, but I don't think this classroom is, is really the most creative zone it could be yet. We have to do something to change the space. So I take everybody out of the classroom. And so we're outside and I say, okay, folks, so right now we have to come up with some kind of ritual that we can collectively do before we go into this classroom, right, to this doorway, because there's a threshold between the outside and the inside. And we want to make the inside special, right, where special stuff happens, right? In this classroom, we are going to come up with some like big ideas, but we have to do something that indicates that, that makes that distinction, So, I mean, we come up with some handshakes, a song, some moves that we do before we go into the classroom (laughs) and we come with it on the spot. Everybody, you know, they're like slapping the the top of the doorway as they come in. And so now there's this like, there's this move, there's this kind of like waking up of the senses yeah, that then primes them for then, okay, all right, folks, we're going to do some creative work and they're ready to go. I really like that. And the other thing I've seen you do with an icebreaker that I have seen done in other places and have seen adopted in other places is the giant rock, paper, scissors tournament, where you actually have everyone in a giant room full of like hundreds of people. I've done, I actually done this as part of a plenary for a conference, actually. And it was oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and basically, it takes not very long because when I describe it, you'll understand. Basically, what you do is you play rock, paper, scissors with the person next to you. But then you get challenge everyone to get up and whoever wins, you're to become part of their entourage and cheer them on. And so what ends up happening is that basically it's an exponentially kind of reducing scale. And within maybe 10 minutes, you're playing off half of the room against the other half of the room. And everybody is just super jived and excited. And it's just, there is just this energy in the room that you don't get any other way. And that has been one of the really cool things that I've seen you do, but that I've also experienced myself in other venues. And it's, it's a, definitely a kind of a, probably not a COVID-friendly technique, but it is something that when, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we're able to meet again in person and, and really kind of have that as be a safety thing. I mean, you don't have to touch people, so that's good. And you actually can do it completely silent. So if you're that's modifying right. your classroom for some of these other kind of activities, then I do think that it's possible. I think you could do it with the Zoom, with breakout rooms, but it's really hard to really navigate the tech of that. But yeah, no, it's, I think it's just really cool to think about those other things or even just doing a simple stretch during the middle of a class when it gets boring or, you know, just wake people up and experience something new. There's something about being willing to be even just a little bit ridiculous that is required to kind of wake us up. 
because it can be really easy to fall into this sort of simple routine of like, hey, well, we're just going to go through this and not do anything that's necessarily going to cause us, you know, some challenge. Because there's a thing about the suspense, the surprise, and the wonder of doing those kinds of things. And I mean, they don't have to be done the same every time. I mean, you can do them the same every time and actually they, they lose their their sparkle for you. So, so even myself, I need to continuously find ways to make this interesting for me so that at least that I, I'm in it and, it, and it's, it's, it's nourishing for me. So that's kind of the, the environment piece, the culture piece around it. The other is, I would say doing, it feels almost like the necessity of, of oscillation, going from really 10,000 feet up to really zeroed in and back again, to really diverging into ambiguity and then really converging on something small and specific. Stretching people's minds like that is helpful so they don't get stuck in either creativity or analysis. You'll go absolutely nuts if you try to do both at the same time. You have to kind of move between one and the other and recognize that they're actually calling forth different parts of you when you're doing that creative work and when you're doing that analytic work. So it's not just about all these wild ideas. No, it's, it's also about being really discerning about out of those hundred things you came up with, what's the one that's worth doing something with? So you got to get out those like editorial knives and cut. You got to cut. And people find that very difficult because we sometimes fear that we're losing a bunch of stuff. That means we don't get to kind of work on all of these other issues. I mean, we know what the problem is though. You don't get anything done. Nothing moves forward because we're always trying to sort of do a whole lot. So design, when I think about design, it's also about the parts of our mind that we're using and how we generate knowledge, how we evaluate knowledge. I think that's really interesting, right? Because I think when I think about design, I think about being creative, having lots of ideas on the page and what you're saying that that needs to be met with equal parts of making decisions and whittling things down. And being willing to be editorial or brutal to your own creativity and restrict what it is you end up putting out, right? Because if you have a huge differential diagnosis, let's say, for a patient's condition, you don't actually end up making any decisions on management unless you can whittle it down to that diagnosis. And similarly, I think with creativity is that you can spitball a whole ton of ideas and they might be very diverse and really exciting but at some point, you have to like whittle that down to the design choices that you feel are the most important for that particular situation, yeah. right? And one of the, the moves or the shifts that's so critical to this that I'm finding is when, when you ask that question, where does design fit in education? Here's one of the, the, the areas where I think it is tremendously helpful. And that is the relationship between the abstract and the concrete. And so when you ask people, can you make your idea tangible? Here are some materials, go to it. It can be very difficult, right? When you ask people to take your idea for, for example, let's say you, you, know, you have an idea for a new service right, that you want to offer people. You've got this kind of, maybe you're thinking about Uber. How would you tell that story to somebody? Can you use images to do that? Can you describe this sort of, even sketch out in rough, the kind of objects people might be using in that service. And in other words, if you have an idea about something that you're creating for people, and that idea could, I mean, depending on your, it could be clinical, right? could be, you know, you come up with a new kind of intervention, is to have people tell the story of that idea using things like a role play, 
right? Where it's like, okay, so, so what's this interaction like as this intervention is now being used, you know, set the scene, right? Who's here. And what that does is moving into the concrete then starts to force us some constraints about, you Mm -hmm. know, things got to obey the laws of physics in some ways. And then it actually also now inspires more thinking. And I think that what you're talking about is a, a form of simulation, right? Like, so, you know, there are great people doing a lot of cool simulation work with mannequins and standardized patients, but this in itself is a, is a form of simulation that you can use in your own practice as an educator when you're actually making design choices. Like, okay, if I were coming at it as a student, how would I experience this? How would I think about this? And how might I actually encounter this activity or this sheet? For myself, I, I like to put away my lesson plans and my rubrics for, until I forget about them for maybe a week or so after I've designed them. So I come at it with fresh eyes, similar to the way I do my manuscripts. I can't be great at editing it if I don't see it and I start reading into it what I thought I had. Or I just get like a, you know, a friendly fire kind of advice to have someone else look at it with fresh eyes and tell me you know, what's wrong with it. Yeah, so the, 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 the generation of an idea and its evolution begins with getting it down and keeping it moving. That's also something when I, when I think about this, where I also think about you, Teresa, as a creative output. You understand the discipline of sitting down and doing it and coming back again and again to that because even the great artists, right? You know, great, the great composers, I mean, they had thousands of compositions, but there, I mean, there was, you know, one or two that were just, that they knocked it out of the park and, and, and things like really made ripples. And so it's, it really sort of challenges this thing that we sort of think of, oh, well, there's creative geniuses out there and they're just born with this stuff. And like, sure, I mean, there's some people who have like, you know, some genetic edge on stuff. But, you know, to be honest, when we look at, uh, you actually talk to these folks, it's, it's, they're just putting in the time again and again. And more than that, I mean, like you said, they welcome the friendly fire. So that maybe is the, the other piece to this is how do we move towards a creative kind of culture in education that does not privilege having the right answer, but privileges being able to go through as many iterations of your idea as possible? Because we know that that's what leads to the good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think Thomas Edison is attributed to the quote, the idea of having, you know, thousands of ideas and having one really good one in there. Or was it Einstein? I can't remember. Someone will have to write us an email to tell me if I was right or wrong. But I do think the idea of proliferation and being creative and leaning into giving more options allows you then more freedom. Because if you start thinking about solutions and you just take the first one, as we all know, like when you do most of life, the first one might not be the best one. And I think that being able to sit with that discomfort of not having the right answer yet before committing gives you a chance, right? Like you don't shop around, go on MLS.ca and pick the first house that's in your price bracket. That would not probably go well, right? But what you do is you look through a wide variety of houses, getting a sense of, you know, what I'm looking for. Is that backyard big enough? Is this gate big enough? Like we do that in other parts of our lives, right? When you're making an important decision. And so I think bringing in those kind of practices that you would have. If you're a clinician, it means that you get the right number of differential. If you actually think about all the possibilities for a patient before you commit to something. So I do think that that's something that we can bring into our educational practice as well, right? Don't just take the first idea that jumps out at you. Challenge yourself to push yourself to find out new things. 
And so what I do with, with my students is I try to push, again, the ridiculous. So when we're brainstorming and they got to come up with some ideas, I'll say, okay, I'd like you to come up with 100 ideas. And I'd like you to do it in half an hour and go. And so, I mean, it's, it's the sort of the constraints and the ridiculous are kind of like, okay, all right, let's put our inner editor outside the door for a few minutes. Let's not edit what comes out. Let's go for the jugular. Let's go for the good stuff, right? And we know that it takes a first, a couple of minutes to burn through the first thoughts that are a bit rusty. And then we, you know, we, we know there, there's this research on flow where, I mean, it, it, things are, are they're, 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 they're challenging, but we're, we're, we're feeling like we have some control. And I think it's those kinds of challenges that I seem sort of almost like impossible to meet, but, but actually it doesn't take that long to do. If we give ourselves the, 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 the opportunity to do it, it's amazing what you can create. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, Sean, that's really interesting kind of take on things. And I think as an educator, it's sometimes the fact that you just don't plan for creating that space to be creative, right? Like how many of us have, you know, spent a weekend designing a whole course to get the course shell up and design all the activities and, and sometimes never come back to it, right? How many of us have just rinsed and repeated last year's lesson plan because life is just getting too busy and you just need to do that. And I think that what you're kind of challenging us all to think is a couple of things, create that space so that you can, you can have some creativity because you've, come to this a little earlier so that you can have more time to iterate and be playful and experiment with things. But then also, I think you're encouraging us to be a little bit more daring in the midst of a course to say, how could we tweak things? Can we, you know, maybe your assessments are dead set and you can't change that now that you've published your syllabi, but even within a single lecture, you could jazz things up by having some kind of like, you know, small touch of creativity. And I think that that's really cool, right? So try to figure out how you can design the course around the people that you have and being responsive to them, I think, is part of that arc of being a learner-centered teacher. And I know that's like, you know, jargony, and we say that a lot, that we should be student-centered, learner-centered, but I truly believe that it's important to just acknowledge that the other person is, at the core of it, an important part of what we do. And in fact, they are the reason why we do everything what we do. So why wouldn't we want to center upon their needs? I think that what happens is that we're all on that lowest part of Maslow's hierarchy sometimes when we're stressed out and where time trunches on and CIHR deadlines are coming and, and all of a sudden everything falls to the wayside and you're just doing this last minute. But what does it mean to have the courage to set aside some time for your own creativity and on the flip side, reserving some time to be able to center on the needs of the people that you're designing for? And so there is my maybe closing challenge to everyone here. And it's this, the next, maybe it's not the next session you go to, but I'm going to dare you folks to show up to a session you're, 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 you're going to be teaching without any agenda, show up completely empty. Of course, you've got all your ideas about what you could do. And, but just once, just to, to know for yourself what it feels like and to see what's actually possible is to show up to a session with your students without an agenda at all, completely open and empty and willing to work with whatever's going to show up in that room and follow your nose, follow the breadcrumbs, see what's alive and allow that to guide 
what teaching might be and that it might move us from beyond teacher-centered, beyond learner-centered to learning-centered, that it's the relationship, the dynamic relationship we need to center. Because without that, then, then, then we're never in a process of knowing in an ongoing way, both ourselves and our students, what, what, what we need. Amazing. That's super awesome challenge for all of us to take up. And I'm looking forward to think about how I can do that. I do actually annually challenge myself to have one lecture a year where I have absolutely no slides. And that's a personal challenge I set for myself. And I pick a random one just to see if I could do the same thing. I mean, I use sticky notes. I use other written medium. I, I, I do other kind of things. Sometimes I play a board game with people, things like that. But I 100% know that what we can do is challenge ourselves to do that kind of work and bring a new flavor of creativity to the work that we do. Because I think it's easy to, for it to get stale. And I think that you've really inspired me to think about how I could challenge myself. So thank you so much. And thank you for challenging all our faculty. Game on. And looking forward to seeing you tweet at us some of the creative things that you do when you hear this episode. So definitely follow us at MacPFD and and give us a tweet at the very least if you don't want to follow us. That's cool too. So thank you so much, Sean, for a great conversation. That was wonderful. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you so much for tuning in to the MacPFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.